Have you ever thought of comfort as a curse? If we're not careful, it can be, as the church in Laodicea found out. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah takes us back to that church that was materially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt. And since this problem persists today, we'll hear Christ's prescription for treating it. Here's David with the conclusion of his timely message, The Disgusting Church. Well, that's not a great title, and I'm sure it wouldn't draw a lot of listeners, uh, but it's the right title for this church, because as we've reminded you, um, the Lord Jesus looked at the church of Laodicea, and he said it was neither hot nor cold, and therefore, because it was lukewarm, he would spew it out of his mouth. And uh, so often today, that's the description of the church. We're not on fire for the Lord. We're not totally cold to the Lord. We're just sort of medium, hanging in there, doing church every day, uh, every weekend, as if uh, nothing was important. And that's what the Lord hates. He wants us to be on fire for Him. And uh, that's the message of this church. And let me remind you that during this month, this very big book, this this book that is the largest book we've ever made available, this kind of like, uh, it's a dictionary of prophecy, really, more than anything else, 463 pages. Uh, you can get this book, and it's really a primer on prophecy. We insisted that they put a very uh, serious index in the back of the book so that anything you hear about in the prophetic world, if you look in the index, it's probably mentioned in one of the chapters. It will direct you right to the place where we talk about it. It's a very wonderful tool. I think it will be helpful to you going forward. So when you send your gift, be sure and ask for your copy of the Book of Signs. Well, our Bibles are open to Revelation chapter 3. Let's finish this discussion of the Church of Laodicea. Jesus clearly warned, that a church would evolve in the last days of civilization which would boast that it was rich and growing and increasing in numbers and self-sufficient. In other words, a church with great influence. How sad that this particular church, arrogant and boastful, is being heralded by so many undiscerning Christians as the glorious last day church of power and dominion. And as you look out at the church today, I get all the literature on the churches. The church growth movement is just unbelievable. And the stuff that people do to try to get folks to come to their church, supposedly as an opportunity to win them to Christ, unfortunately what happens, the end result isn't usually that. We've taken to all of the marketing skills of the world to build up the numbers of the church, and you wonder, once they get there, why are they there? What is there for them when they come? Somebody told me a long time ago, you have to win people with that which you already have. If you go out and try to get people to come to your church, and then they come to your church and find out that what they thought you were, you are not, they won't stay long. But here in America, all of the market-driven events that try to get people to come to church, but they come for the wrong reason, because they're invited for the wrong reason. The church is the citadel of God's truth. When you come to church, you should hear the truth of God. When you come to God's church, you should be nourished up in his truth. But if all you have is entertainment and some of the bizarre things I have read about that people do, then you're just like this church in Laodicea. You think you're doing good, but you're not. You think you're wealthy, but you're poor. The Laodicean church was a compromising church and it was a conceited church. But it was also a Christless church. Notice verse 20 in this text. Behold, Jesus says, 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Here is the last characteristic of the church. Jesus Christ is on the outside of the church trying to get in. Now, we often take this passage in Revelation 3.20 as an invitation passage for personal salvation. It can be used for that, but that's not what it means. Here is a picture, according to the writer of the book, of the condition of the church in the last days. Jesus Christ is not a part of the church. He's on the outside of the church. He's knocking at the door trying to get into the church, and obviously he's not being received. What a tragic picture of the church of Jesus Christ in our age. During his first visit to this world, Christ predicted that his second coming would be met with unbelief. He said in Luke 18, 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on this earth? And the expected answer is certainly not. So the condition of the church at the time of Christ's return is a Christless condition. Jesus isn't in the church. It's the church of Jesus, but he's not there. He's trying to get in. He's knocking at the door of the church, seeking entrance back into the church, but he's not welcome. The invitation that Christ gives us is the narrowest of all the letters of the churches. In Thyatira, there was a remnant. In Sardis, there were a few names, but here it is, if any man hears my voice. This invitation is an individual one. While the hierarchy in many end-time churches has denied Christ, he still knocks at the door of the individual hearts of the people in the church. I don't know if you know what's going on in Christendom today. But this is an apt description of that which breaks the heart of anyone who loves the church and loves Christ. Christ is almost unmentioned in many churches. Periodically, a reference will be made to something he said. But instead of Christ being the center He's clear at the circumference, and he's falling out of mention in so many religious circles. The correspondent to the last church is Jesus, who is the amen of God. The characteristics of the church are that it is compromised, conceited, and Christless. Notice the counsel that is given to this church. What should they do? The God of the universe condescends to give counsel to this sick, lukewarm church. As a doctor would prescribe medicine for a sick human body, so the great physician prescribes help for this weak spiritual body. First of all, notice the prescription for spiritual poverty. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. This is ironic. These Laodiceans were well endowed with the riches of the earth, but what they really needed, they could not buy with their gold. It didn't transfer into the currency of heaven. Isaiah, the prophet, alludes to this. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Laodiceans had a lot of earthly money, but it didn't do any good in the heavenly realm. So they couldn't get anything worthwhile with the money they had accumulated. And Jesus says, what you need for your poverty is some spiritual gold, some spiritual wealth. The Laodiceans must no longer trust in their banks. 
They must come to Christ for his riches. He alone can open their eyes to behold a spiritual wealth of which they know nothing. This is a subject that's addressed several times in the New Testament scriptures. I wish I had time to read all of the scriptures, but let me just choose two. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Here, the writer to young Timothy, Paul, is telling him what he should say to the wealthy people in his church. He said it's all right to have wealth, but make sure along with your material wealth that you are rich in other ways. He counsels them to be rich in good works, to use the influence God gives them to make a difference. How many very wealthy people there are in this nation who just sit on the edge of their seat waiting to be a part of something they consider to be a worthwhile venture for Christ. Not everyone who has money who are Christians are hoarding it like we are made to believe. Many of them understand they are stewards of that which God has entrusted to them. And I want to tell you something. I know you may not believe this. When I see some of their incredible wealth, I thank God he didn't entrust me with it because it is an incredible burden to know what to do with it and how to use it. It is incredible stewardship that God places in their hands and one that they take seriously. And when they do, it means a great deal of time on their knees before God to determine where it should be directed. The prescription for spiritual poverty from the mighty God is to go buy some gold from the heavenly bank. (laughs) Notice the prescription for spiritual nakedness Jesus said to this church, you are poor and you are naked. But notice in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy white garments that you might be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed. The Laodiceans were like the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's story. They thought they were clothed in splendor and they were naked. The concept of spiritual nakedness in the Bible has to do with being spiritually defeated and humiliated. And the Lord counsels these Laodiceans to buy some white raiment from him. The white raiment is defined for us later on in the book of Revelation in the 19th chapter like this. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In fine linen, clean and white, symbolizes the righteous acts of believers. In other words, the lukewarm lifestyle of the Laodicean church needed to be transformed into a lifestyle of red-hot zeal for God. The natural result of godly zeal is the production of righteous acts by the believers. Instead of being clothed with righteous acts as believers, they thought they were good because they had a lot of stuff. And the Bible says that in all reality, they were just like walking around naked, spiritually naked. The prescription for spiritual blindness. No, he doesn't miss one. Watch this. I counsel you to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In the city of Laodicea, there was a medical center. And one of the products of that medical center that was manufactured there and exported from that medical center all around the then known world was a tablet that the Roman Empire thrived on. The tablet was called Tephra Phrygia. And it was used to heal a wide range of eye ailments. The users would crush the tablet, mix it with a small amount of water, and put it on their eyes and wait for the healing to take place. The Tephraphragia was a famous eye salve that originated in the city of Laodicea. 
And Jesus was reminding these blind Laodiceans that they needed more than the tephraphragia to see. They needed the truth of God, which only Christ could bring them. While they may have had good eyesight physically, they were blind spiritually. And what informs the way you see the world, men and women? Do you view the world through the lenses given to you by the Holy Spirit? And have you ground those lenses in the pages of the Holy Scripture? Or has the spirit of the age placed a set of lenses over your eyes that you do not even realize are there? So many Christians today have forgotten what it means to have spiritual insight. We've lost our spiritual eyesight. In our country now, even among Christians, we don't look at life as Bible-believing Christians. We look at life through the secular lenses we have adopted by living in this messed-up world. And so when we see something happening in our world, if we're not careful, we wait to see what the pundits say about it, and then we sort of give it a little Christian pat on the back, and we adopt the pundit's view. We get to the place where we're willing to say that things that are wrong, that we know are wrong, are maybe not as wrong as we thought they were. Maybe they're almost right. And so that which is good we call evil, and that which is evil we end up calling good. Because our eyesight has been tested and ruined by not spending time in the Lord's Word so that we keep our spiritual lenses clean, we allow our eyes to be fogged over with the mess of the world, and then when things happen that we don't understand or we hear people asking about them, we have no clue. Because we haven't seen things spiritually for so long, we wouldn't know a spiritual truth if it jumped up and bit us. The prescription for spiritual blindness is spiritual eyesight. Take the tephraphragia of God, the tablet from the Word of God. Notice the prescription for spiritual compromise. It says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Therefore, be zealous and repent. It is interesting that the only other church that Jesus explicitly says he loves is the church at Philadelphia. Interestingly enough, Jesus loves the church of Laodicea. He loves this church that's lost its way. He loves this church of Europe that no longer understands who Jesus is or even wants his name mentioned. He loves the culture of America where we're not sure whether God belongs in a program or out of a program, whether he can be mentioned in an organizational meal or whether he can be prayed for. He loves this culture. He doesn't love what this culture does. But isn't it interesting on the messages that says God loves us, he always has and he always will. Look down at your verse again. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He's speaking to the people in this church. He's saying, I love you, and the reason I rebuke you is because of my love. It's what we've talked about so many times here. God loves you just the way you are, and he loves you so much that he won't leave you that way. He wants you to get past where you are to where you ought to be. One commentator reminds us that Jesus loves you enough to want you to be righteous. He loves you enough to confront your unrighteousness. He loves you enough to inspire the Bible. He loves you enough to call you to zeal and repentance. If Jesus did not call people to repentance, he would be sending them a message. Do you know what that message would be? The message would be, go to hell. Rebuke here in the text describes pointing out a problem and convincing someone to do something about it. Chasten is a reference to correction or punishment with the purpose of training an individual. 
a zeal or eagerness to get right with God must replace the lukewarm spirituality that characterized the church, and the zeal will be seen in repentance. If you realize, wow, pastor, this is about me. I used to be on fire for God. I used to want to serve God more than anything else in my life, and I've gotten warped into this culture, so now I'm just like these people. I'm lukewarm too. The things of God aren't nearly as important to me as they once were, nor are they as important to me as now I wish they were. Where do you go from that, people? What do you do about a compromising church? What do you do for spiritual compromise? There's only one thing you can do. Repent of it. Ask God to forgive you of it. Get on your knees and say, Lord God, I am sick and tired of only being halfway into my faith. From now on, I want to be all in. All in, Lord, with everything I've got. Sam Storms explains that repentance is by itself not confession. Confession moves the lips. Repentance moves the heart. Naming an act as evil before God is not the same as leaving that act. Though your confession may be honest and emotional, it is not enough unless it expresses a true change of your heart. There are those who confess only for the show of it, whose so-called repentance may be theoretical but not actual. In other words, it's one thing to say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for what I'm doing. That's confession. But repentance is, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've been doing, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to turn from it and go in a new direction. We have a lot of stuff going on in churches where we have these confessional meetings and people get up and they tell all the secret sins to everybody and it's all very sensational. What you need to do after a service like that is go back and see if anything's changed in their lives. Because anybody can get up and say, I made a mistake or I did wrong or I sinned. That's confession. But unless it is accompanied with repentance, no changes will be made. And we're just fooling ourselves. We're doing the outward thing as the church of Laodicea did. The prescription for spiritual poverty, for spiritual nakedness, for spiritual blindness, and for spiritual compromise. And now notice, lastly, the prescription for their Christ-likeness. Revelation 3.20 again, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. There is not a more wonderful invitation in all of the word of God. There are only 33 words in this English version of this verse, and all except three words are short, crisp words of one syllable. They are the words, behold, any, open. There's an amazing strength and simplicity in this invitation. In his other invitations, Jesus called men to come to him. In this invitation, he comes in person and stands at the door to knock. Christ is here pictured in our relationship to the church as well as to the individual, and he stands outside of the professing church that claims to know Jesus but obviously doesn't. And here's Jesus knocking at the door, trying to get into his own church. Although a lot of people, as I mentioned, have used this verse as an evangelistic call to unbelievers, and I think by way of application, that's certainly okay. What it really is, is Christ and his church in the last days. The church has kicked Christ out of its programming, out of its messages, out of its ministry, out of its ordinances, out of its very being. And Jesus Christ wants back in. And he's knocking at the door. We should be knocking at his door. He's knocking at ours. Years ago, 
a man by the name of Holman Hunt painted a picture of what verse 20 says. It's a picture of Christ knocking at the door. The picture is not called Christ knocking at the door. The picture is called the light of the world. If you've ever seen this painting, you probably wonder why it's called the light of the world. Because Christ is knocking at the door. The spiritual genius of the artist gave the picture its title. The painting is of a cottage run down and neglected. Thistles have grown up to the height of the window. Grass has grown up in the pathway to the building. Vines and weeds are the center of that picture of neglect. And it stands as one of the kingliest forms that mind could ever imagine. It is the Lord Jesus with a lantern in his hand from which light is cast on every darkness and shadow. And with his other hand, the Savior is knocking at the door of the cottage. On one occasion, a man viewed this famous painting by Holman Hunt, and he went to visit the artist. And he said to the artist, you have made a mistake in your painting. You did not put any handle on the door. It's just a plain door. No, said the artist, it is not a mistake. The handle is on the inside. We must open the door. The seven letters end with these words. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. These letters, and especially the last one, men and women, teach us one important lesson. Listen carefully. The church must be Jesus-driven. I've heard about seeker-driven churches and small group-driven churches, but the church in this age, for it to be of any viability at all, must be a Jesus-driven church. If the church is not that, it is not the church of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is on the outside still knocking at the door. You know, even in our churches, men and women, where we uh, focus our attention on the Bible, we need to constantly uh, measure ourselves against this standard. Is Jesus Christ the center of all that we do? Have we lifted him up? The Bible says when we lift up Jesus Christ, he will draw all men to himself. And that surely ought to be our goal, no matter what we do and where we happen to be in the Scripture. So that's a good reminder to us and a good place for us to end the teaching on the seven churches. And in the meantime, we encourage you to get to church on the Lord's Day. You know, some of my pastor friends have told me that though the pandemic seems to have um, pretty much settled down in their community, some of the people that used to come to church don't come anymore. And that's a great concern. You get out of the habit of going to church. It's not easy to get back in the habit. So let me just encourage you, if you're, if you're well, if you're not sick or uh, in the presence of others who are sick, you need to get back to church. And somebody says, well, I'll get around to it. No, the time to do it is when you hear the voice of God in your heart saying, go to church. And I've tried to be an echo of that voice today. You need to be in church and encourage your pastor Church is a very important priority in your life if you're a Christian. Now, don't forget, over the weekend be a good time for you to sit down and write us a note and, and close a generous gift for Turning Point. 
um, and say, during this month, I want to remember Turning Point. And when you send a gift of any size, we will send you a copy of the book, The Book of Signs, 463 pages of prophetic truth written in easy, understandable language like um, news articles, like short chapters in a book. They tell you what the Bible says about 31 most important topics. It comes complete with a scriptural and topical index, which enables you to locate any subject or topic you're looking for, know exactly where to find it in the book. And I'm pretty sure you will look back and realize this this book is a, a blessing and an encouragement. And the most important thing is all you have to do is send a gift. And it's yours for a gift of any size to Turning Point. Simply ask for this book when you send your gift today. Well, have a great weekend, and uh, be sure to be here on Monday. We'll be on television in your area over the weekend. Most of all, honor the Lord with your presence in church. We'll see you Monday. Today's message originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and Dr. David Jeremiah, the senior pastor. If this ministry is an encouragement to you, please let us know by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's book, The Book of Signs, 31 Undeniable Prophecies of the Apocalypse. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Available in your choice of handsome cover options. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we begin the prophetic series, Signs, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. An item purchased 100 years ago for $1 would cost more than $23 today. That's an inflation rate of more than 2,200% in just 100 years. 
and the inflation rate will get worse in the future as governments create more dollars to pay off debt. The more dollars there are, the less each one is worth. When Jesus recommended storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, he cited moths, rust, and thieves as reasons. But he might also have mentioned inflation. Investing in eternal goals is the only way to make sure money never loses its value. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's principles of investing on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.